As a parent, I take comfort in the fact that I haven't messed up my kids too badly. They do well in school, they enjoy sports and activities, they have friends, and they're polite to their elders. At 14 and 12, I know I better knock on wood. There's still plenty of time for things to go astray. Admittedly, the one area that I have failed in is instilling a work ethic. Sure, they study, and yes, they work hard at their respective sports. I'm more so talking about chores and yard work, cleaning their room without being asked, putting away the dishes, vacuuming, taking laundry downstairs, lifting a rake or a shovel, bringing in the trash cans, little things that would make their parents' lives a lot easier. My father will vouch for me. I've apologized to him a few times in the past couple of years. As I watch my son grow into a man, I see a lot of me in him and I realize that I should have helped more around the house. Like my dad did with me, I try to let my son have his time to play and hang out with friends and get his homework finished. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I think he's just going to magically run outside and start helping me one day. As time passes by, I realize that that is less and less likely to happen. So like me, he'll figure out how much work goes into being an adult when he's on his own. And like my dad is with me, I'll be there to help him out. He claims that he's excited to get a job. I remind him that he should take this time to focus on school and that he'll have his whole life to work. I get it though. As a teenager, you want some independence and your own cash. I had a paper route when I was younger. I didn't do very well with it, but it was my first taste of work and responsibility. Two days a week, I'd throw on my Walkman, slap in my Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion 2 tape, and hop on my bike. I wasn't very good at collecting the money every month, and I'm fairly certain my folks had to pay the tab on more than one occasion. My first real job was at a bowling alley that my family bowled at. I started when I was 15. I don't remember a whole lot about the job, just that there was a never-ending amount of ashtrays to dump and beer bottles to clean up. Depending on what day I worked, it could be very busy with leagues and parties, or it could be a ghost town, and I'd have time to play the arcade games and eat my weight in mozzarella sticks. From there, I went on to work at McDonald's. Laugh all you want, but ba-da-da-da-da, I loved it there. Sure, it was gross at times, and I rarely didn't smell like fry grease, but it was fun. I made friends there, received numerous raises, had access to unlimited nuggets and Monopoly pieces, and honed my voice acting chops on the headset in the drive through line. Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order? My last job before I turned 18 was at a store in the mall called Musicland. Actually, it was two stores, Musicland on one side and Suncoast Motion Pictures on the other. This was a horrible choice of a job for me. As you might have picked up while listening to this podcast, I love music and movies. You may then ask, why was it so horrible? Being around that music and those movies for eight hours a day was on the level of a drug addict working in a meth lab. In what was probably one of my lowest points in my life, I gave in to the addiction along with another employee and we took a few CDs, tapes, and movies without asking. For any family listening, I know that's hard to hear. You all think of me as, well, an angel. Between the peer pressure, the low pay, and my eagerness to stick it to the corporate man, I became a thief. A few things came from that. I really let down the manager, who liked me a lot. That was hard to take. Of course, my parents were embarrassed and disappointed, which didn't feel good. 
It also turns out that my friend and I accidentally exposed a security flaw that longtime employees had been taking advantage of for years. So they were mad at us too. My manager didn't call the police, thankfully. We had to pay for what we took, and I drove home that day feeling like a slug. I still get goosebumps when I walk by the units that used to house the two stores. They're both out of business now after Best Buy bought them out in 2001. Whew. Admitting all of that just now was cathartic. Thank you. So what was I building towards? Oh, right. No matter how bad I think I had it with dirty ashtrays and full grease traps and helping grandmothers find their grandsons a Christmas gift, it wasn't nearly as bad as what you're about to hear. It's the children discussed in this episode that make me realize I should put a rake in my son's hand more frequently. A little hard work wouldn't kill him. At least not as easily as some of the jobs children had back in the 1800s. Episode 13, All Work and No Play. In the September 1906 edition of Cosmopolitan Magazine, famed poet Edwin Markham wrote the first piece in what was to become a series of articles on the state of child labor in America. The first of which, entitled The Home Man in the Making, took a look at children in the workforce. The article begins with a remembering of a story about a Native American chieftain who is being shown the wonders of New York City. When the tour is done, a group of Christian men ask the chieftain, what is the most surprising thing you've seen? Expecting him to mention the cathedrals or mansions or skyscrapers or even the hustle and bustle of crowded streets, the chieftain replies simply, little children working. In Judaism, it's said that children must not be taken from the schools even to rebuild the temple. Many Greeks, Romans, and Native American tribes, like the one the chieftain belonged to, all believed in letting kids be kids. So why, for over a century between the Industrial Revolution and the early 1900s, did we expect children, some as young as four or five, to work 10 to 14 hour shifts six days a week? Many people back then believed that it kept kids from having too much idle time. Others thought that if you were going to be a burden on the family pocketbook for 18 years, well, the least you could do was work. Others, after the end of slavery in 1865, saw it as a savvy business move. Children worked cheap. One of the earliest records of a child being forced into labor in the U.S. involved a young man named Nathan Knight. In 1676, there was such a thing as poor laws that made it legal for a child to be indentured. Nathan Knight, an eight-year-old boy, was apprenticed to a mason bound to serve and abide the full space and term of 12 years and five months. He was provided food, shelter, and clothes in exchange for his labor and was not allowed to leave his master until he reached the age of 21. Before we get too deep into this, let's first head back in time and find out what types of miserable jobs these kids were doing. Coal miner. When I think of the Industrial Revolution, I think of steam. Steam powered many things in the 1800s, from trains to ships and everything in between. In order to get steam, you needed heat. And in order to provide heat, you needed coal. Mine shafts are tight spaces. So who better to put into those tight spaces than kids? At least that's what mine companies and owners thought back then. 
Mines are also dark, often pitch black, which makes it quite hard to see. Youngsters would come away with permanent vision problems due to the strain on the eyes. As you could imagine, ventilation was also a fairly large issue. The air around these kids was packed with coal dust. The average shift would last anywhere between 12 to 18 hours a day. Imagine breathing in coal dust for more than half a day, every day. It's no wonder that these kids were riddled with respiratory problems. They suffered from a variety of lung issues and cancer. There was also constant noise and rat infestations. Some suffered permanent spine deformation from having to walk bent over for hours at a time. The dangers were real and bountiful. There were no workplace safety laws in place yet. The threat of an explosion or cave-in was always in the back of everyone's mind. On May 19, 1902, 216 men and boys lost their lives inside the Freighterville mine after an explosion occurred. The cause of the explosion was never identified, although it was assumed to be due to a buildup of methane gas resulting from poor ventilation. By the time all the bodies of the deceased were pulled from the mine, the town had lost all but three of its adult males. Hundreds of women were widowed, and roughly a thousand children were left fatherless. Some families lost as many as eight family members. Younger children were mainly hired to fill the role of trapper. They would sit alone in the dark and open a trap door by pulling on a string when they saw or heard the coal carts coming. There were countless deaths by coal cart. Hours into a shift, maybe a tired youth would fall asleep. In comes a cart at a fairly high rate of speed and the child would be crushed. Tweens and teens worked mainly as coal bearers, carrying large baskets of coal on their backs. Chimney sweep. These kids, typically boys, were referred to as chimney sweeps apprentices. Each child was apprenticed to a master sweep. Their parents would sign papers of indenture which bound that child to the master sweep for seven years or until they became an adult. The master sweeps responsibilities teaching the craft, providing the apprentice with a second suit of clothes, having him cleaned once a week, allowing him to attend church, and not to send him up chimneys that run fire. Kids sometimes started this job at the age of four, but six was the commonly accepted perfect age. The chimney sweep apprentices would start each morning by taking to the streets and loudly announcing their services. Once they found a job, the master sweep would place a cloth over the fireplace. The child would remove his boots and most of his clothes and pull his cap down over his face. Holding a large flat brush over his head, he'd then wedge himself into the flue. Imagine, if you will, the way that a caterpillar moves. That's what these soot-stained kids looked like as they used their back, elbows, and knees to work their way up the flue. The brush above their heads, waving back and forth, dislodging soot. They'd also sometimes have a scraper to chip away the solid chunks. Once they reached the top, the job was still not done. Now they had to fall back down the chimney and bag up the soot that they'd loosened. Soot could be sold by the bushel for extra income. Typically, these kids would tackle four or five chimneys in a day. As the skin on their knees and elbows hardened, things got a little less painful. Sort of. Sometimes the chimney would be hot from a recent fire or, in some cases, still on fire. These kids were no strangers to burns. Boys could become stuck and wedged into the fireplace flue. If a section of soot fell while they were stuck, they would most likely suffocate. Climbing boys also suffered from neglect. 
as well as stunted growth and deformity of the spine, legs, and arms due to being in abnormal positions for long periods of time. Sores and inflammation of the eyelids led to a loss of sight for some. Cancer of the scrotum was found only in chimney sweeps, so teaching hospitals designated it as chimney sweep cancer. Rat catcher. Catching rats was a highly sought-after job for kids in the 1800s. Its popularity stemmed from the fact that it was a more lucrative job compared to most. Rat catchers were typically older kids, however, because it took the investment of owning a terrier and a ferret. Let's do a little rat math. This information comes from VancouverWildlife.com. Female rats are in heat every four to five days and can be in heat again within 48 hours of giving birth. The gestation period is between 21 and 23 days. Female rats produce litters between 5 and 12 pups, depending on the species. Amazingly, female rats can produce as many as 7 litters per year, which means up to 84 offspring per year. That's just one rat. Due to the fact that rats mature after just 3 months, the population can swell from 2 rats to around 1,250 in one year. In theory, a pair of rats could produce nearly half a billion descendants in just three years. All of that rat math added up to plenty of work to go around for rat catchers. Now, if you were a rat catcher, that meant that you were also probably a rat killer. The easiest way to do the deed was arsenic. They'd mix the arsenic into food and feed it to the rat. As the years passed by, the times changed, and it became more profitable to catch the rats and sell them alive for rat baiting. What was rat baiting? Rat baiting was a bloody sport where numerous rats were placed inside a pit with a dog. You and your pals would then place bets on how fast the dog could kill all the rats. Unlike baseball, football, and golf, this sport did not catch on, thankfully. One of the only dangers of rat catching came from the fact that rats aren't really seen out in the open. They prefer to hide in holes, haystacks, and dark locations. The chance of getting bitten frequently was high. Rats can carry all sorts of fun diseases, like hantavirus, leptospirosis, lymphocytic, choreomeningitis, tularemia, and salmonella. There is also such a thing as rat bite fever. According to the CDC, RBF can cause fever, which is in the name, vomiting, headache, muscle pain, joint pain or swelling, rash, and in some cases, if left untreated, death. This was a job for kids who wanted to experience life on the high seas and gain knowledge in the medical field. The job was primarily linked to the Royal Navy and has gone through numerous name changes as well as eventual age and training requirements. From the late 1500s to around 1860, the name Loblolly Boy was given to any medical assistant on board a ship. The name comes from a thick porridge that was often served as sick crewmen. In 1861, the name Surgeon Steward was introduced along with more stringent training requirements. The name changed to Apothecary in 1866 and again in the 1870s to Bayman, and then in the early 20th century to Hospital Corpsman. By then, it was a more dignified job meant for military personnel. But early on, the job duties were harsh and the training requirements lacking. A loblolly boy was typically homeless and in need of work and shelter. Their duties included serving food to the sick along with any medical tasks that the surgeon was too busy or too awesome to perform himself. The list included restraining patients during surgery, obtaining and cleaning surgical instruments, 
disposing of amputated limbs, and emptying and cleaning toilet utensils. They would also manage stocks of herbs, medicines, and medical supplies. Matchstick Dipper. For being the one that sounds the easiest for a child to handle, this last one may be the most upsetting. This job was often taken by young girls in their teens. Matchstick dipping was a monotonous task that some did for up to 14 hours a day. It turned out to be one of the most dangerous jobs for young people and not just because matches can start fires. These girls and young women were required to take the wooden matchsticks and dip them into white phosphorus. The phosphorus gave the match head the ability to be struck anywhere. Phosphorus fumes got into their lungs and the phosphorus itself onto their skin, primarily their fingers. Imagine these gals then taking a break and eating their measly lunch only to transfer the phosphorus from their fingers to the food and into their mouth. The medical term fossy jaw came directly from this job. It's scientifically known as phosphorus necrosis of the jaw. How would they know if they had it? You'll be sorry you asked. It usually began with painful toothaches and swelling of the gums. The persistent yet progressive pain spread to neighboring teeth and throughout the jawbone. Over time, pus developed with the formation of fistula, tooth loss, and recurrent abscesses. Next came the dead bone separating from the living bone in what's called sequestrum. Within six months, full necrosis of the jaw. The lower jaw was more commonly affected than the upper jaw, with affected bones reportedly glowing a greenish-white color in the dark. Fossy jaw also affected the brain, sometimes causing seizures. Many people, mostly young women, suffered from it, and it was brutal. Best case scenario, the disease was caught before it spread, and a doctor would just have to remove the lower jaw. Worst case scenario, it wasn't caught in time, and the disease spread to the brain, causing an agonizing death. If none of those jobs appealed to youngsters in centuries gone by, they could always try their hand at factory worker, scaring the birds from the fields, farm worker, laundry, textile mill, pickpocket, newspaper boy, domestic servant, pin setter at a bowling alley, street sweeper, or hat maker. via poor laws. By the end of the 19th century, American children worked in large numbers in any one of the aforementioned jobs. Reading through a list of key events in the history of young people's rights is painfully laughable. While people may have condemned child labor publicly, nothing much to speak of was ever enforced. In 1832, the New England Association of Farmers, Mechanics, and Other Working Men came out against child labor. In 1836, Massachusetts created the first state child labor law where children under 15 working in factories had to attend school for at least three months per year. How nice of them. That same year, trade unions at the National Trade Union Convention proposed state minimum age laws for factory work. In 1842, Massachusetts limited children to working only 10 hours per day. Several states piggybacked on Massachusetts and their announced laws, at least publicly. Nothing was ever done to ensure that the laws were being followed. There was no one going around consistently enforcing them or penalizing companies or individuals who broke them. 
1874, the Working Men's Party proposed banning the employment of children under the age of 14. In 1881, the first National Convention of the American Federation of Labor passed a resolution calling on states to ban children under 14 from all gainful employment. A step in the right direction, to be sure, but enforceable or followed through on? Probably not. In 1899, a man named John Dewey became president of the American Psychological Association, and he advocated hard for children's rights, specifically their right to education. He's often acknowledged as one of the heroes of the children's rights movement in the United States. Things began to pick up steam at that point, with more adults speaking up. In 1901, a woman named Jane Addams founded the Juvenile Protective Association to advocate against racism, child labor and exploitation, drug abuse, and child prostitution in Chicago. 1903 saw Mary Harris Jones organize children that were working in mills and mines as part of a march from Pennsylvania to the New York home of President Theodore Roosevelt. This came to be known as the Children's Crusade. Kids carried banners demanding, We want time to play! And... We want to go to school. The march brought the issue of child labor to the forefront of the public agenda. The following year, in 1904, the National Child Labor Committee was formed to abolish all child labor. It was just a few short years later, with the aid of world-renowned photographer Lewis Hine, that real, noticeable changes started to happen. Lewis Hine was a teacher in New York City at the Ethical Culture School, where he taught his students to use photography as an educational medium. He believed that documentary photography, as he called it, could be employed as a tool for social change and reform. Practicing what he preached, Hein left his teaching position in 1908 and became the photographer for the National Child Labor Committee. Over the next 10 years or so, he documented child labor everywhere. As a photographer taking pictures of children at work, he was frequently threatened with violence or even death by factory police and foremen. This former teacher turned superhero spy photographer came up with different aliases and disguises to gain entry into various mills, mines, and factories. At times, he was a fire inspector or a postcard vendor, Bible salesman, or industrial photographer making a record of factory machinery. His photos, which are almost all public domain and available at the Library of Congress website, tell the sad story of child laborers and what they'd been dealing with for hundreds of years in places like the United States and the United Kingdom. These pictures opened everyone's eyes to what was still taking place despite laws and organizations trying their best to end the practice of children in the workforce. By 1938, according to the Department of Labor, the Federal Child Labor Provisions, authorized by the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, also known as the Child Labor Laws, were enacted to ensure that when young people work, the work is safe and does not jeopardize their health, well-being, or educational opportunities. As we wrap things up, I'll leave you with more wise words from poet Edwin Markham from his Cosmopolitan Magazine article series, The Ho-Man in the Making. And why do these children know no rest, no play, no learning, nothing but the grim grind of existence? Is it because we are all naked and shivering? Is it because there is sudden destitution in the land? Is it because pestilence walks at noonday? Is it because war's red hand is pillaging our storehouses and burning our cities? No, forsooth! Never before were the storehouses so crammed to bursting with bolts and bales of every warp and woof. No, forsooth! The children, 
while yet in the gristle, are ground down, that a few more useless millions may be heaped up. We boast that we are leading the commercialism of the world, and we grind in our mills the bones of the little ones to make good our boast. I don't know for sure what forsooth means, but you can bet on me using it more frequently henceforth. It's now 2021, and while there are still struggles with child labor in some countries, American children can now sit on their iPhones for upwards of 13 hours a day while they step over laundry, ignore the dishes, and watch their father mow the lawn for two hours. I'm not good at assigning chores to my children. Most of the time I either feel too guilty or don't like the way they're doing it, so I just do it all myself. I'm hoping it's not too late to instill a little bit of the hard work is good for kids mentality. I certainly don't want to go back to the way things were in the 1800s, but maybe if we can get them to help out once in a while and learn to do things without expecting a reward, we could make this next generation of kids learn the value of hard work, earning respect, and maybe get them off their devices once in a while. Thank you for listening. If you have a moment, please leave a five-star review on whichever app you're listening to this podcast on. It really helps. Don't forget to join me on any of the socials or on the website, curator135.com. I'll have some of Mr. Hines' photos on the website as well. Until next time, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. Forsooth. Rat catcher. Forsooth. Mouse catcher. Forsooth. Chinchilla catcher? What?